Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, a podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. Today's show features a discussion about the shape of the 2016 presidential election and our regular economic update featuring insight on tax reform and tax policy ideas from the campaign trail. My guest today is Elaine Kmark, Senior Fellow and Founding Director of the Center for Effective Public Management here at Brookings. She is the author of Primary Politics, Everything You Need to Know About How America Nominates Its Presidential Candidates. Welcome back to the show, Elaine. Thank you for having me. We're about a year away from the presidential election in 2016 and months away from the first caucuses and primaries in Iowa, New Hampshire, and elsewhere. What do you think are the most important dynamics you see operating in both the Republican and the Democratic primary processes? They're different for each party this year. They're not always different, but for this this year they are. On the Republican side, I think the most fascinating dynamic is the attraction of so many Republican primary voters to outside candidates or non-traditional candidates or celebrity candidates, whatever you want to call them, but people who have no governmental experience and who aspire to have the top government job in the country. This is strange. And a lot of people are wondering whether this will actually last to till we get to voting or whether this is kind of the silly season and voters are expressing their anger by saying they're attracted to Trump and Carson. But in fact, when it comes time to vote, will they actually go somewhere else? And on the Democratic side? On the Democratic side, this is more predictable, okay? I think there you see a very seasoned candidate, somebody with a great deal of experience, a lot of depth. She is comfortable in her own skin in a way that I think she wasn't um, eight years ago. Uh, there's a, you know, there's a maturity about her that in, in said in the good way. Um, and I think that Odds are she will be the nominee of the party um, and is having a – I'm sure there will be bumps in the road. But frankly, she's been having a very good month and I expect that may continue. Do you care to venture a, uh, a prediction about who the nominee for the Republican Party might be? I can't pick one person, okay? Now, my guess is that unless the party decides to commit suicide, and sometimes, let me say, political parties do commit suicide. Uh, think the Republicans in 1964 when they nominated Goldwater. Think the Democrats in 1972 when they nominated McGovern. Um, sometimes political parties kind of go off the rails, but most often, frankly, they don't. So my guess would be that the Republican nominee will turn out be, to be one of the following three people, Marco Rubio, Ted Cruz, or John Kasich, the governor of Ohio. And the reason I include Kasich in there, even though he's very low in the polls, is that the possibility of having a Florida-Ohio Republican ticket when those are the two most important states, swing states, those are the two states that a person has to win to become president, uh, I think that's going to start to grow on people. And people are going to realize, well, yes, their heart might be with Ben Carson, but gee, they'd really like to have a Republican president more than they'd like to see Hillary Clinton be president. And if that's the case, then this Ohio-Florida 
duo, regardless of who's first, uh, becomes a pretty compelling case to primary voters. And speaking of Florida, do you care to comment on the candidacy of Jeb Bush? It seems to be fizzling away. He seems like a candidate who does not have his heart in it. And I don't think that was predictable um, from the beginning. Uh, His team is obviously nervous. All these uh, rich Republicans who are part of the Bush machine are obviously nervous. Um, And he keeps doing resets. And, and, you know, you're always in trouble. When a candidate has to do a reset, it it means trouble. Um, And there's a very, very crowded field. He is not the natural establishment candidate. One way to look at this is to look at the Republican field as as two fields. There's the non-traditional candidates. These are people with no government experience but celebrity. And then there are the traditional candidates. Going into the race, he should have been the favorite of or the leader in that second category. The fact that he's not, I think, is very, very problematic. Let's move on to the primaries here in a second. I just want to draw attention to listeners to your writings on the, what you call the elusive appeal of the celebrity candidate. So they can find that on our site and in the show notes. So thinking about Iowa and New Hampshire, caucuses, primaries, whatever we call them, why do those two states, and I think also South Carolina and Nevada, get so much attention at the start of the primary season? They give about 2% of the Republican delegates, a smaller percentage to the Democrats, and their demographics are really different from the rest of the states. In a in the modern primary system, where you go over a period of about five or six months from one contest to another, being first is incredibly important because being first helps it in the first contest is where the voters weed out the field and they shrink the field of candidates. Those two states have fought long and hard to remain first. And the two national parties, the Republicans and the Democrats, have basically given in to them and said, yeah, okay, they want to be first. They they have a well-run caucus system in Iowa, a well-run primary system in New Hampshire, Okay. Now, a couple of years ago, the Democrats took the lead in addressing the representativeness piece of this and added to the early lineup South Carolina with a very large African-American population and also in the South and Nevada with a very large Hispanic population and in the West. The Republicans have gone along with that as well. And so now there's really four critical early states. When we get done with those four states, we will have on the Republican side, at least, a much narrower field because there will be people who basically get, you know, one or two or three percent of the vote. And uh, there won't be much reason for them to continue on in the race. You move from those small states to very, very big states and to primary days when there's a lot of contests on one day. And then the contest becomes much more of a national contest. Sticking on the theme of primaries, the Brookings Press has just issued a new edition of your book, Primary Politics, that I mentioned at the introduction. 
Can you mention one thing that the public should know but doesn't know about how America nominates its presidential candidates? I think the thing that is most confusing to most Americans is that this is unlike any other election process in the in in America. This is a process that's all about sequence. Sequence matters. What happens in this process because it is spread out over 5 months is that success or failure in one contest has an immediate impact on success or failure in a subsequent process. And I think the source of a lot of confusion about how we nominate our presidents comes from the fact that in no other part of the American democracy do we have this sequential system where you win or lose, and that then has an impact on the next contest in which you win or lose. And what about this thing I've heard about called the invisible primary for endorsements and superdelegates? Can you talk about how that fits in? Mm-hmm. The Well, we are in the middle of the invisible primary. And so the invisible primary is typically composed of several elements. It's endorsements from other party leaders, um, superdelegate preferences, and the Democratic Party has about 800 superdelegates, and the Republican Party has about 100 superdelegates because their only superdelegates are their party chairman and vice chairman. But in each party, the superdelegate vote is a vote that is not dependent on the outcome of a primary in a state and is a pretty much free vote. Okay, for the person to decide. Um, so that's where the super. So it, it coincides with endorsements. If a United States senator is endorsing you, he or she also has a vote at the convention, so you can count their their vote through the endorsement. So that's number one. Number two is money. And in the old days, in the invisible primary, um, it used to be that amassing a large war chest was incredibly important. And then if you did not do well in the first couple of primaries, basically the reason you got out was because your money disappeared. There's This is slightly different in this day and age thanks to, and I'm saying that you know, facetiously, the collapse of the public financing system and thanks to the emergence of these billionaires with their super PACs. And what we saw in 2012 was that these guys could keep alive a candidacy long after it should have been alive. <laughs> okay, they would. They, these guys can put a Rick Santorum or a Newt Gingrich essentially on life support, and that didn't used to be the case um, before the Supreme Court changed its its way of doing business. Um, so that's this the second thing, and then the third thing, which we're seeing right now, are polls. And again, there's two problems with polls in the invisible primary. Um, The first is it's extremely difficult to predict who will actually vote in a party primary. Uh, Very, very small numbers of people actually participate in primaries, although the early presidential primaries have large turnout, but the subsequent ones tend not to. So it's questionable whether the people who are telling the pollsters, yes, I intend to vote, even though the pollsters are very good at screening, et cetera, it's questionable whether they will in fact vote. And then the second thing is 
people do like to express their anger of the moment or the celebrity of the moment or the person whose name they heard most recently. And then by the time the primary get actually gets to their state, people change their minds. Okay, again, it goes back to this sequential nature of this system, which is what happened the week before in another state across the country actually has an impact on how voters think and how they behave. So if you take those three things, the endorsements, the money, and the polls, uh, the invisible primary is somewhat predictive, but it is not the whole ballgame. So given that, as you said, a very small number of people participate in these caucuses and primaries, except for maybe the early states. Um, and given that the candidates tend to tack toward those voters so they can win, do you think that this uh, nomination system increases polarization generally in the electorate? Yeah. With the, the basically primaries in the United States, the primary method of nominating candidates increases polarization. Um, now, this varies depending on the competitiveness of the general election. So ironically, because the general election in the United States is so competitive, right, because we've had a lot of elections, they come within a couple points of each other in the last several years, you know, and so we have close presidential races. Um, candidates in the primaries are a little bit cautious about saying things that will get them into big trouble in November. I just noticed today that Ben Carson is trying to pull back on his some of his statements about Medicare. That happens, right? The, the place where you see it affect behavior most dramatically is in congressional primaries because very few congressional districts are actually competitive. So the voters don't have to worry about whether or not this person can actually win. So in a contest between the voter's head and the voter's heart, in congressional primaries, their hearts often win out, which is why we get the Freedom Caucus in the House of Representatives. We get such, you know, extreme behavior. In presidential primaries, uh, there were a lot of people in 2012 who really wanted to vote for somebody other than Mitt Romney. And when they got into the polling booth, they decided that Mitt Romney had the best chance of beating Barack Obama. And so they voted with their head and not their heart. So it's sort of the flip side of voting in a congressional primary. Hey, we're going to take a quick break and listen to a Wessel's economic update. I'm David Wessel, director of the Hutchins Center on Fiscal and Monetary Policy at Brookings, and this is my economic update. Ten years ago, back in 2005, President George W. Bush appointed a panel of experts to come up with a tax reform plan. And they did, but it went nowhere. Key members of Congress took one look and said they didn't want to even read the rest of the report. The U.S. Treasury said it was studying the plan and never mentioned it again. Now, tax reform is not imminent, but there sure is a lot of talk about it. Pfizer, the big drunk company, the one that makes Advil, Viagra, and Chapstick, is in talks to buy an Irish company so it can shift its headquarters to Ireland and pay less in taxes without moving its chief executive out of New York. It's the 50th U.S. company to do that since 1982, the 20th since 2012, despite a law and treasury regulations that were intended to stop the practice. These inversions, as they're known to tax geeks, have become the poster child for everything that's broken in the corporate tax code. 
Republican presidential candidates are floating all sorts of tax reform plans. Paul Ryan, the new Speaker of the House, has a longstanding interest in revamping the tax code, and perhaps he's in a position to pursue it now, although not until after the 2016 presidential election. The Tax Policy Center, a joint venture of Brookings and the Urban Institute, held a reunion for the members of that 2005 Bush tax reform panel the other day, in part to offer advice so the new generation of tax reformers have a better chance of succeeding. Some of the most interesting comments came from Jim Perturba, an MIT economist and a member of the commission, compared the economy of 2015 to the 2005 economy and said tax reform takes place in a very different environment. One, we're much more worried about inequality today. Two, we're much more worried about how slow the economy is growing, and we want to find ways to use the tax code to encourage growth, but sometimes that means cutting the tax on capital, and that can make inequality worse. Third, the corporate tax code is much more broken than it was 10 years ago, as the Pfizer infusion story tells us. And fourth, while it's often conventional wisdom that tax reform is easier to do if it's, quote, revenue neutral, which means that it raises the same amount of money as the old tax code, he wonders whether we can afford revenue neutral tax reform now, given that we're going to need more tax revenues to pay for the retirement of the baby boom and rising health care costs in the future. But then John Bro, the former senator of Louisiana, spoke up, and he said, look, it's very simple. The key to this is let the economists and the experts design a better tax system and then tell them to get out of the way and let someone else explain it and sell it to Congress and the public because economists are not very good at that. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. All right, and I'm back here with Elaine Kmart. Elaine, the process seems to take so long. You've talked about the sequential nature of the process, and you suggested perhaps a national primary day or holding all primaries on the same day. Can you explain what that could be? Um, Again, it's slightly different for presidents and for Congress, but what basically happens in the presidential primary system is that the voter in an early state often matters more than the voter in a late state, okay? Because sequence does dominate this process, a lot of times by the time you get to June, uh, the race is over. That's why you see such low turnout in presidential primaries, especially towards the end. The race is over. Why bother voting, et cetera? Um, A national primary day would, in fact, make every American's vote an equal vote. That's the appeal there. Congressional primaries don't have the sequential nature. I mean, those are just elections held on one day. But there's there's a different day for practically every state. So what happens, particularly in this era when we don't have a lot of local newscasts, when we are everything's very nationalized, is that the discussion about the direction of a political party doesn't tend to happen in any meaningful way um, with the voters. Whereas, uh, do a little thought experiment here. Imagine if all Democrats voted for their congressional nominees and their Senate nominees on May 15th. In the weeks leading up to that, there would be a big debate about the direction of the Democrats. There would be a debate about internal to the party, what's going on. And maybe imagine if the Republicans voted a week later. There would be then a big debate about 
what's the direction of the Republican Party. Um, what we lose in the current obscure nominating process is we lose the opportunity for voters to have an impact on the direction of their political party. And so what happens is the most extreme voters tend to dominate, and they pull the Democrats to the left and the Republicans to the right. What a surprise then when they get to Congress and nobody can agree on anything. That's a good segue into my next question, which is that uh, former senator and former Democratic candidate Jim Webb recently wrote an op-ed stating that there needs to be as president, quote, a common sense independent who can bring to Washington a bipartisan administration to break the gridlock, paralyzing our political debates and restore the faith of our people and their leaders, unquote. Does his proposed solution ever work? Never. That, that's the bottom line. We have, we have examples of independence. The, the closest I can think of is um, that it gives some light both on Donald Trump and on this independent notion is uh, Jesse Ventura, who was the much heralded, arrogant, bombastic, uh, colorful uh, governor of Minnesota. He had one term. It was largely a disaster. Um, political parties are incredibly important. They shape Americans' behaviors. They are the best predictor of how Americans are going to vote. And there are, in fact, real and meaningful differences between the parties. Uh, you can't really have democracies without political parties. Political parties are the sort of essence of democracy, but they're also the part of democracy that voters love to hate. Well, you, you also wrote recently that, and I'll quote, maybe our problem in America today is not the presence of politicians, but the absence of good ones, unquote. What did you mean by that? What I meant by that is that in a polarized time as we are in with large differences between the parties and large differences between the voters that support those parties. In other words, the the Republicans in, in Congress aren't making this stuff up. I mean, they've got voters at home who really feel like this and the same for the Democrats. It, in times like this, you actually need more political skills, not less, because the political skill is ultimately the negotiation skill. I mean, it's interesting. I think that one of the appeals of Trump is he kept keeps asserting that he's a deal maker, that he can make the deal. Well, what's been missing from our politics recently are politicians capable of making the deal cutting the deal and moving us forward. And that's why I said you probably need more better politicians as opposed to fewer. It is unclear to me whether that Trump's experience cutting deals in real estate are at all predictive of an ability to cut deals in a government with divided power between the executive, the legislative, and the judicial. It is really unclear to me that Ben Carson's skill in the operating room, which is apparently quite substantial, has any relevance whatsoever to the ability to put together the pieces in a meaningful way in a very complex political system. Well, as we, as we exit, let me ask you to tell our listeners how you stay on top of political news. What are your sources? You know, my my best sources, which I don't always get to exercise, are listening to politicians themselves. 
okay? Politicians, for all the, the you know, bad press they get, uh, do go home a lot. They do talk to voters a lot. And interestingly enough, they have a pretty good bead on what their voters think. So you have to sort of pay attention to politicians. And I think a lot of academic political scientists you know, like to study politics by the numbers, but leave out the politicians. Um, I also then go to the political websites, Politico, Real Clear Politics. I, I, I have a slight preference for Real Clear Politics, although I'm not quite sure why. I mean, because I, I think they're both both those sites are extremely well done. And of course, the newspapers and um, television. Uh Television is very important because it does what the internet can't do unless you're streaming television, but it starts on TV, and what the uh, what polls can't tell you. Television gives you the affect of each of these people uh, who are running, and that's how a lot of voters see them. So I try to watch the politicians as often as I can. I managed to stay up for that entire three-hour Republican debate, which was painful. But, you know, you want you really do want to get a measure of these folks um, as the voters in Iowa and New Hampshire um, are getting a measure of them. I watched the World Series that night. Yeah, see, <laughs> that's you were smart. <laughs> and I didn't have a dog in that hunt. But anyway, well, thank you for joining me today, Elaine. And, and I look forward to having you back on the show as the 2016 campaign continues. Great. Thank you very much. You can learn more about Elaine Kmark and her work at the Center for Effective Public Management on our website, brookings.edu slash effective public management. And also more about her book, Primary Politics, at brookings.edu slash primary politics. My thanks to our audio engineer and producer, Zach Colzer, our artist, Jessica Pavone, and our online support team of Carissa Nitsche, Rebecca Weiser, Eric Abalahan, and our intern, Karen Whalegurgis. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on iTunes, listen on Stitcher, and send feedback email to bcp at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.